Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Today, I want to talk to you about music. And I want to talk to you about music as a means of communication, a way of connecting ourselves to history, and as a form of expression that allows emotions to be experienced through sound. That's what music really is, after all. How many of you uh, this morning are, are music majors? Oh, just about, just about everyone. Good number. Well, you have a different sort of connection to music uh, in that sense as music majors. But if I were to play for you your favorite song right now, whether that song would be by Ed Sheeran, Maroon 5, Rihanna, you would probably, it would probably remind you of a specific time and place where you first heard the song. Perhaps you'd even be reminded of certain feelings. Now, we know that music, there's always been music that's made you just want to feel good and want to dance, right? Um, but I'd like to suggest to you this morning that the role of music has changed drastically from what it was 200 years ago. Now, not, not from the music majors. Um, who can tell me who the composer of that piece is? Yes, Beethoven. And not from the music majors. What piece of music is that? Symphony, very good. It's the symphony number five, right? Um, one of the most famous pieces in all of classical music. Um, and so today I want to speak to you about the, the changing role of, of, of music in today's society. You know, how has music changed from Beethoven's time, you know, to the present day? Um, I also want to talk to you a bit about Beethoven because he's going to be the featured composer uh, at our next college series concert, which is on March the 20th. Fate and communication are the two aspects of Beethoven's music um, that we'll focus on. Beethoven is a composer, of course, whose music not only has universal messages, but someone whose music speaks to basic emotions and ideals in, in us all. The most fundamental way that the role of music has changed is in the way it's experienced. For example, uh, during Beethoven's time, most music was written to be experienced publicly at a concert or a party. This might have been music uh, that was, it might have been a commission piece, uh, commissioned by someone in an aristocracy, by a king or a prince specifically uh, for an occasion. And I think that this gave, in particular, classical music a bad rap because it set a certain 
idea, if you will, that it was music that was written for a certain class. And it actually divided um, more than it brought together. Not that that was the ideals of the music, but that was the social sort of conception. Of course, we know today nothing could be further from the truth, that this is the music, because it's lived so long, um, that speaks through the ages and speaks to people of all ages and all backgrounds. These days, just about everyone experiences music in a more private way. Everyone has music on their phone, right? Uh, their iPad, and I know I've seen, if I haven't seen you guys walking around campus with your headphones, I've certainly seen uh, at other universities folks uh, doing that. In a sense, uh, this draws people closer to the music, and you probably feel more of a connection with the songs that you listen to. Ironically, though, the music unites us less for live concerts in this day and age because you're experiencing it more through technological means. Music as a social phenomenon has also changed. In fact, our very connection to the music has changed due to social media. Social media allows people to interact with artists and have a different kind of role in what music becomes successful. YouTube and other online sites allow a different kind of visual connection to the music. In many cases, the very concept of what is a good song or makes good singing is tied to visual images. I like to think of this as visual listening. Um, we can all think of many examples, of course, where we've come to know and appreciate a song um, through film music, for example. And maybe uh, this led us to a great, greater appreciation um, of, of what the song was or what it was about. But I think, ultimately, we should be able to separate that visual um, connection, if you will, from the oral qualities of what makes music great. And of course, there are those competitions. The Voice, American Idol, you could probably name many others. So no longer is it good enough to sound good. An artist also has to be appealing visually as part of a saleable package. And these shows also shape the way artists and their music are received. So while we talk about that, the way artists are received, let's not forget about the commercial aspect in today's society. Because music in today's society actually has less commercial value. That is to say, if you think about when the Beatles or Michael Jackson uh, wrote a song, the sheer commercial value was higher, much higher, because of the way in which you had to consume the music. Um, if you wanted to listen, you had to buy an album, a unit of an album, or you had to buy a CD uh, once they were invented. And there's obviously now streaming, there's Spotify, there's Pandora. So 
artists at the time of Michael Jackson or the Beatles received actually more of the profit. There was an interesting article that I read uh, not too long ago um, that spoke about a particular, focused on a particular artist who had millions of streams for one of his songs. And the amount that he received for those millions of streams was less than $4,000. So it gives you a sense of how this has impacted artists and performance. Okay, why is this important? Because it means for those of you who look towards a career in music, your approach will have to embrace technology in new and bold ways. Um, this is something, of course, that we've been dealing with a great deal as a classical music profession for many years now, to find ways to make music more accessible, but at the same time to keep the value in the music, the value in the appreciation of that it is an art form that we need to support and pay for. Um, so both of those will challenge you um, as music majors. And I think no matter what end of the profession, the business you go into, you will find um, that you will not only need to be spokespeople for the music and the importance of it, if you're performers, um, but you'll also, companies, uh, the organizations that you work for, um, will look to you to find those new ways to reach people and to make the technology more a part of the organization uh, with which you work. What's really changing, I think, about music is the human element. It's the very connection that between that people have. It's the connection between people with the music. Um, and this is why I think music actually remains one of the few forces that can bring us closer together as a community. What is perhaps more important than ever, I think, is that the music is reflective of and responds to the needs of the community. Um, it's, a, it's a big subject, um, but it's one I think that's vital for especially artistic organizations to think about, that intersection of art and the community, and what is it that an artistic organization gives or brings to the life of a community. It means also that we all have to try harder in our efforts to go and hear and experience live music. It's one of the reasons that we created our college concert series, uh, which provides free tickets for college students to select concerts. Uh, the goal of this series was not only to break down some of the stereotypical barriers surrounding classical music, um, that it's not for everyone, that it's expensive, that um, it's boring, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, but it was also to, to create 
to remove that financial barrier and to create an environment where both listening and the social experience of being with other students was paramount. So Beethoven and fate and communication. Um, so this next college series concert, which is on March the 20th, which I hope we'll see you all of you at, focuses on the music of two important composers, of uh, Beethoven and Sibelius. Um, for those of you who are not music majors, um, how many of you, do, you, do you know the name Sibelius? Have you heard the name Sibelius? Yeah. Well, Sibelius was, you know, a very important figure in Finnish music, uh, and he lived um, around the mid-19th century through the mid-20th century. And so as such, he was a really pivotal figure um, in the history of classical music, for sure, uh, because he lived, if we think about it, he lived from 1865 to 1957. So that means that he lived uh, during the time when French composers like Berlioz were, around, uh, were still alive. And he lived when pieces by composers like Tchaikovsky were contemporary. That was new music when he was alive. And what's interesting, I think, about pairing uh, these two composers together, Beethoven and Sibelius, is that they actually had similar trains of thought compositionally. Um, I think Sibelius actually learned a great deal from uh, that generation of great classical composers uh, because he thought, like Beethoven did, very much in terms of small units, small motives, uh, cells, or themes in his case, which then could be developed throughout a symphony. So on this program on March the 20th, you'll hear uh, four different works. You'll hear at the beginning an overture by Beethoven, the overture to Egmont, uh, then Sibelius's great symphony number no. five. Uh, after the intermission, a piece, another piece by Sibelius, uh, his Lemminkainen's Return, which is based on Finnish folklore. Um, and then finally, we close the program with Beethoven Symphony Number no. 5. We call it Famous Fifths. Um, it's no secret that Beethoven, we know, had a difficult life um, and that he believed in the idea of fate. Uh, well, I th what I think we forget sometimes is that Beethoven was also, he was a revolutionary. Um, the opening of that first movement of the, the Fifth Symphony, if you think about it, who starts a symphony like that? That was revolutionary for 1808 when it was written. It was shocking. And Beethoven would famously identify that opening um, as fate knocking at the door. And I think what's more fascinating about this particular symphony um, is that, of course, that those four notes influence the whole symphony. So if you look through the movements of uh, the four movements of the symphony, you could find that motive, that rhythmic idea 
perhaps in each of those movements. But it's, it's I think, perhaps even more important that Beethoven knew that the concept of the piece would endure through his own personal experiences, um, problems with health, love, social awkwardness. He managed to find a way in his music to, to overcome those things, to write heroic music that really uplifts, if you will, the, the human spirit. Um, for those who are music majors, how, and you know a bit about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, how many performance majors do we have? I guess well, we all, it's uh, Bachelor of Arts in Sacred Music. Bachelor of Arts in Sacred Music, okay, okay, good. Learning organ or voice. Organ or voice, ah, even, even, that's good, still. Still, because you know Beethoven's Symphony Number no. 5, so I can ask you this question. So, so how does Beethoven you know, accomplish that, you know, in, in his Fifth Symphony. How does he, what is it that he does that, very basic sort of ideas that he uses, but how, how does he accomplish that? This, this, this journey, because it really is a journey from the first movement, just tragedy, right? Uh, fate, um, to the last movement, which is triumph. Let's see if we can figure this one out. Uh, So when you listen to that last movement, that beginning of that last movement, and you know, of course, the famous opening of the first movement, and you know how it goes, um, what's the first thing that strikes you? You want to raise your hand. I know you do. It's, it's a total shift of emotion. Right. The dark, almost like imminent destruction and aggressiveness of the first movement to this just joyful, triumphant, exuberant, right? It's like the last movement is full of light and the first movement is full of darkness. There's a huge shift. There's a huge emotional shift. There's a huge, there's a huge swing, a huge color shift too, right? Yes. Yeah. And he does it with still playing off of that same da-da-da-da. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But what's, what's a very, as music major, what's a very basic way that he does it? Just what's want something very basic. He goes from minor to major. He goes from minor to major, right? C minor in the first movement. And the last movement, do, mi, sol, dum, bum, 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 C major, yeah? And it, it gives this music a triumphant, sort of heroic, sort of feeling that he has somehow, and as you listen, of course, you know the, the rest of the finale, that he has somehow been able to overcome, you know, those, those many things which 
created problems for him even this early in his life, because of course he would still live another 20 years or so um, after he wrote the symphony. I think what's unique about Beethoven is the sparseness, you know, how basic this music is uh, in a certain way, appealing to very primitive core aspects as we listen, right? In that sense, you know, the primitive core aspects, it's not that much different than what Taylor Swift uses at the beginning of Shake It Off, a drum beat, right? A basic drum beat, sort of a hook to get you into the song, right? It's that, that way of thinking about heartbeat, rhythm, that's found in the music. And interestingly enough, there's been some new um, evidence, um, research, that supports that some of the irregularities in Beethoven's music were a result of him having an irregular heartbeat. So some of these rhythmic oddities that we, we know about the tonal shifts, but some of the rhythmic oddities may have had to do with his own health. And it's, 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 it's interesting because, you know, someone with all these phys physical ailments, with deafness, which obviously caused much awkwardness uh, for him, um, finding the way as he did to overcome that, I think, was really remarkable. Um, to create heroic music that uplifts and inspires. And I think it's that which continues to make his music a strong communicative force and gives it such an enduring quality today. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.